What a gift it has been for me to be here, not only to stay with uh, my good friends, Brad and Janelle, <laughs> and those two boys that are most of the time behaved like their mother, but sometimes like their father. Uh, it has been an incredible gift. You guys have welcomed, and Brad has taken me around and let me taste Chicago in many ways, and that... I may regret, but it's been good. And in truth, I have tried to say, since we've been together, I think something that is, if heard, very confronting, but I've tried to, as Eugene Peterson says, tell it slant. When Jesus confronted idolatry or misplaced worship, it was always with story. He was pretty smart, you know. I think it's still the best approach. (laughs) But what I have tried to say, I think I've said this each week, that the idols of the church in North America have grown heavy enough that we are tired and worn out. Try it slant. Our tires (laughs) are bald and without traction in a culture that is increasingly muddy. Amen? See, we all say amen to the slant version. I like that. That's good. But, I've said this each night, this does not mean that the gospel of grace, the message of hope, the redemption of lives, the transformation of minds isn't still active in the world. Amen? Amen. Because that's God's work. And God continues to do His work in places and ways we least expect it. That has been my theme. And it starts in Sunday morning when I spoke at Brad's church. I told a story about a room full of addicts that God shows up and says, you are enough, you are loved. That's God at work. It's God at work in the empty basilica full of chanting monks that I told you the story about. And with a splash of water, God restores the one He calls out. Amen? And I told stories that give us a a picture, I hope, of the church that runs counter to what our expectations often of what holiness is. But I believe there are stories and images, narratives that that teach us or maybe give us a new posture. Somebody used that word earlier in worship, and I loved it. That posture that the church needs to take in our world today. The church as... The wild and free Harley rider who welcomes us who aren't sure if they belong. Amen? If you weren't here, catch up later. Just give me a low hand. Right right there. Yeah, thank you for that. I walked in today and somebody goes like this. I'm like, yes. And I also tried last night to share a a real-life story about a repentant church who, who was moved to obedience and became a faithful people. And I, I, I'm, I'm very certain of this, that if we are experiencing a revival and if we're to catch up what God is doing in this world, we must be willing to leave behind the anxious producing positions of power and success that often we default to as a church. If you humble yourselves and pray. I, I believe that it's going to require that reposturing and a sake of giving ourselves away to the neighborhood rather than asking our neighborhoods to come and check us out. You with me? That was pretty good preaching. I know we could sit and talk for days about how the church needs to reposture itself, what that looks like, and we could talk about the praxis of all those things, but this is my last night here, so I've got to jump straight to the point. And I'm going to try to tonight. Because I think often the church, we've settled for a picture of worship, discipleship, and evangelism that only makes sense among Christians. It serves as programs for Christians to commit to. But I don't think I have to do any convincing to tell you that we live in an increasingly post-Christian society. And that posture no longer makes sense to those that are looking to see if someone would give them a low hand of welcome. Amen. 
And I'm going to tell you why it doesn't make sense. Because the, the practices, the narratives that are very important in the Christian walk of worship and discipleship and evangelism, there are competing and powerful daily narratives and social scripts that undermine our once-a-week scripts of worship, discipleship, and evangelism. Did you follow that sentence? I believe this with all my heart, that Christianity, following Jesus, this path of holiness, must become a way of life. By the way, I could point to some generations that knew that, that must become a way of life, that worship, discipleship, and evangelism must become the practices of our daily presence. In other words, we must get back to a neighborly kind of living every day. And see that neighborly kind of living of worship and discipleship and evangelism as the church at work in the world. Now that was, that was really good. I love this letter. Uh, written possibly in the time of the apostles, but certainly there's a manuscript that's written in, in 130 A.D. They think potentially it, it, it's earlier than that by its language. It's a letter called the Letter of... Diognetus. And it's written as a description of what the Christian community looked like in those first couple of generations after Jesus. Here's we have a picture of the Christian church, a picture of them. It says, For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language, nor the customs by which they observe. For they are neither inhabitant cities of their own, nor do they employ particular forms of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of merely human doctrines. But by inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities according as the lot of them has determined and following the customs of the natives in respects to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessionally strikingly method of living. <laughs> they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet they endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land to them as, as is their own native country. And every land of their birth is, is as a stranger. They marry, they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They, make poor, they are poor, but yet make many rich. They lack in all things, but yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, but, yet they, they are very, but their very dishonored is glorified. They are spoken evil of, but yet they end up justified. They are reviled, but blessed. They are insulted, and in turn that insult into honor with love. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners, persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those that hate them are unable to assign any reason for that hatred. To sum it up in one word, he says, what the soul is to the body, Christians are to our world. Now, that's a powerful description, is it not? Of a people who come after and are following after the way of Christ and their very lives have become the testimony. Are you with me? The question I'm asking tonight is what would it take for the church to once again be known in God's world like that? And my premise has been since our first night that it was going to require a renewed response to the invitation of Jesus to follow me, he says. It will require us to learn how to be wild and free and welcoming and loving like Jesus. It's going to require us how to walk and watch and work with Jesus. And tonight, we're going to end this process, I suppose, with the most intriguing phrase of the verse that's in Matthew 11. And that is, we must learn 
to walk the unforced rhythms of grace. Love that. So let's again read this theme verse that we've been walking through. Are you tired, worn out, burn out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I continue to mention my sabbatical journey. The season, 18 months of my life that, well, it took about a year and then six months of my life that I was quiet and humble enough to hear God's call in a new way. It's good reason that I keep talking about it, by the way, because it was in that season of a focused prayer, of mentorship, and a season of rest that the trajectory of my life was radically changed. I'll take you back to the third week of sabbatical. We'd begin to, to truly rest as a family. My body and my mind began to actually accept that rest. And one night, I woke up about 3.30 in the morning, wide awake, aware of absolutely vivid dreams. And I'm not a dreamer in that way. It was shocking. You ever been there? Like you wake up and you're just, what just happened? I thought it was very interesting. I, I journaled. I took some notes and I talked about it. And the next night, uh, I went to sleep and I woke up about 3.30 in the morning with this incredibly vivid dream. And for about a week, it happened every night. And suddenly I began to realize, you should write this down. And I began to, to write out some of these dreams and what, what it seemed as if was being said in the midst of them. And I'm going to share three stories with you that I have written out of the dreams that I believe God gave to me in a season of rest. It's my prayer that, that these three stories that I'm going to give to us speak to us today. They have transformed my own life and I, I hope that they become seeds that, that grow into beautiful fruit for us all. The first one I call the robe. I dreamed I was a priest, not far off, I suppose, wearing a robe of call. But this particular moment, I was dressed in a heavy black robe, kneeling at an altar. Head down, eyes closed. I was praying. No, I was begging. I was consumed with whatever my spiritual need was. It was unclear, but what was clear was that I was in in prayer. I looked up, and I saw around me a small gathering of people, some standing at a distance, kind of wagging their head in smirky disapproval, others standing close, pulling at that dark robe as if trying to have it for themselves or potentially undress me. Seemed to be silently praying. I wasn't certain if they were praying with me or for me or for themselves. And I quickly bowed my head again and, and closed my eyes and began to pray. And as I prayed, there was a hand on my shoulder. I turned and looked in my dream and there was, there was no one there. I asked those around me who, who touched my shoulder and, and no one knew. And I went back and began to pray again. But the pray, prayers began to feel different. I was losing interest. The begging had stopped and now the words had stopped. The prayer at the altar seemed so self-absorbed. All I could think about in the moment was what or who had touched my shoulder. I stood up and I walked away from the altar, still dressed in this heavy robe of priestly attire. And I walked out the doors and squinted in the bright blue sky. And suddenly I realized in that moment that the robe was no longer dark and heavy, but it was light and blue 
like the sky. And I began to walk. And I walked to places close, and I walked to places far. I walked in mountains, I walked in valleys, I walked in the city, and I walked in the country. And the only thought that consumed my mind as every person I asked who touched me was the question of pursuing the hand. I had a second dream. I call it the farmer. It was a beautiful day, calm, blue, bright. Before me was a a partially plowed field stretching as far as I could see. The rows were straight as a ray of sun and followed the bend of the horizon as far as you could see. And standing there in the middle of this unending field was a farmer, his workhorse, and a plow. I hollered to the farmer, hey, can I help? And the farmer turned and acknowledged my cry, but continued to plow the straight row out of sight and over the horizon. I stood still, hoping that he would return, and suddenly, what seemed to be hours later, I saw him again returning in my direction. He came near to the edge of the field where I was standing, and as he began to turn to go back the other direction, I said, can I help And he paused and looked back and said, Do you know why we work? But as soon as he spoke the words, there was no pause for an answer. He and the horse and the plow headed back over the horizon again and out of sight. And I stood still in silence, trying to figure out a response to the question. And finally, what seemed to be hours, maybe years even later, that finally the horse and the plow and the farmer came back over the the hill and, and back in my direction, and I realized I still did not have an answer to the question that he had asked. Do you know why that we work? But as soon as he spoke again, he asked the question one more time. Do you know why we work? And headed back to repeat the journey again. And I stood still, waiting for his return. The question playing over and over in my mind, do I know why that we work? What is he trying to say? What is the work? Who is the we? This time I saw him coming again in my direction, and I had decided I knew what to say. He approached and asked the inevitable question again, Do you know why we work? And I spoke the only truth there was to speak. No. The reality was I didn't know. I couldn't know. I was not the one guiding the horse nor holding the plow. I was not the farmer, though the highest horse, and I certainly was not in the shape of a plow. I could not know. I did not understand. I do not know why you are working. I want to help, but I do not understand what is happening. The farmer looked at me, and with a pleased look, said, Let me show you. Wait here and watch. And once again, they turned and disappeared over the horizon. I waited somewhat impatiently, wondering when he would return. And sure enough, like he always had before, he did. And this time he stopped. And the farmer stepped out from behind the plow, set the, set the reins down to rest, walked over to where I was, and said, watch. And I looked in the direction the farmer was looking, and I saw the most incredible sight There, those freshly plowed rows of dirt suddenly changed into the brightness of green. And as I stood watching, emerging from the ground were rows of lettuce and corns and beets and peas and fresh beans and fresh sprouts of grain. Even in the distance, I saw the purple haze of alfalfa clover, and suddenly the vines began to spread out and pumpkins and beans began to sprout right in front of me. There was nothing I had done. It was as if the farmer spoke a word and all of it had happened right there. The farmer spoke again and says, do you know why we work? I stood silent, aware that I did not still know 
why. And then he answered with this. We work to eat. Third dream. I was on a hike with a small group of friends, and each of us had a backpack. As we walked, we, we came upon a place it was a place that had obviously previously teemed with beauty and life, but now this place is barren. Perhaps the barrenness was caused by the left-behind scars of war, perhaps from famine or storm, perhaps land exhaustion, perhaps the lack of Sabbath from greedy farming or mining. It was unmistakably abuse that caused this land to be a barren one. And dwelling in this barren land were a people, a hungry, a starving people, a desperate people, a people whose own endings certainly seem near without the provision of food. Long gone are the streams that would have provided fresh and living water or fish. Long gone are the forests that would have provided shelter or perhaps a meal of mushroom or nuts. They were empty of nutrition, kept alive only by their desperate want. And the people in this hungry, barren place, they couldn't see tomorrow or have any hope for tomorrow because today's needs had completely taken over their future. They had lost hope and had only been left with demanding desire to gratify today's existence. Can you see this empty place? Do you see this precarious people in your mind's eye? Can you join me in my dream that says, I see them? Now, what are they doing? Perhaps some of them are sitting still, too weak to move. Some are laying down, already in the position of death. Perhaps others are, are raging in their want, demanding provision for themselves. My group of friends and myself, we, we begin to hike into this area, and we, we begin to see these places of, of barrenness and these people of, of desperate need. And suddenly in my dream... I am aware that attached to each of us on our backpacks is a strange piece of wood. We begin to wonder, what is this? And we curiously hold the parts of wood standing at each other saying, well, that, that looks familiar. I'm not for sure what it is. Well, look at this piece. And do they fit together? And we begin to, to suddenly assemble the pieces that we were given. And in the middle of this barren and desperate place with these hungry people, suddenly we realized what the pieces we had been given we were putting together. As we put it together, it, it turned into a table, a wooden table, there in the middle of the, the desperate people in the barren land. And then another friend pulls out of his backpack a blue towel, and he covers the top of the table, and it, it looked like fine linen. And suddenly something began to happen in this barren land and these desperate people. A crowd began to gather around us and, and there was a feeling of almost desperation in us because we realized what they were thinking. Here we, out of curiosity of just putting together these pieces, began to realize that we had sent a message that perhaps we had unintended to send. A table in the middle of a barren place with a desperate hungry people. The crowd began to gather around and the rumor began to circulate that we were preparing a meal. Are you with me? The crowd of curious and hungry villagers, they gathered at the edge of our preparation, each one wondering, will they be invited? Some were wondering if this was just a cruel and manipulative joke. But everyone else was wondering and curious about what was being brought and set up in the middle of this place. Some stood back and, and marveled at the extravagance. Why me? I'm starving hungry. Why the linen? Why the table? Some wept in anticipated relief. Still others began to count the spaces at the table and wonder, was there space for them? They began to look around and know that the group was far larger than the size of the table. And suddenly, in the midst of of this desperate people in a barren place with these people who have put together a table and are wondering, now what do we do with it? There came a different kind of presence. More than the side of a table, more than a people who had arrived to put together their gifts and pieces that, that turned into the table, more than the anticipation of a meal, 
Suddenly there arrived in our midst out of nowhere the smell of food. And someone says, what is that delicious smell? And another responds and says, it smells like cornbread and pot roast. And another said, no, I'm pretty sure that's French toast and coffee. And somebody else said, no, I know that. That's deep dish pizza from Chicago. Amen. The smell that began to come into this barren place with its desperate people, it hinted of a meal that was yet to come. But one cannot survive or sustain on only anticipation or an aroma. One cannot live on want alone. It was certainly the table and it was certainly the aroma that had drawn all these people around in this moment of anticipation. The crowd pressed in even further. They were now growing impatient. There were some that were pushing to the front demanding to know, when will the meal begin? There were others that were simply saying, when will we be served? There were others who were waiting at the back of the crowd, unsure if they would even be invited. And still others stand and just simple trust and watching the preparation, knowing that the Roma itself was a sign of their already but not yet have arrived meal. The table had been set, the aroma of the food has arrived, and everyone is leaning in, waiting for an invitation, wondering what is about to happen. And I am too. Because in the dream we realize... We don't have any food. We didn't even know we had the table. And suddenly there was this desperation that happened inside of me and I I felt this tension of, I don't know what to do. The need is great. The opportunity is rich. But I don't have any food. (laughs) You're with me, aren't you? We circled up, my friends and I. Some might call it a board meeting. (laughs) And we began to strategize, what will we do? And someone suggested that we form some lines. Because efficiency is what's important in order to triage the need. (laughs) Let's make sure we have a good structure in place before we ever start to distribute any food. We didn't have any food to distribute. Then somebody else said, what we need to do is we need to make sure that the most hungry eat first. Maybe we should let the children be at the front of the line. Or possibly it's the weak and closest to death. And then somebody else reminded us, we don't have any food. Then somebody else said, it's our responsibility to meet these needs. We must prioritize. We've got to do the right thing. Somebody said, I've got a great idea. Let's hear it. They said, I I think we should serve buffet style. We all line up. Let's get some good measuring steps so that we have enough that we can give to everybody according to how that they need. And let's make sure that everybody gets a good measured amount. And somebody spoke up and said, We don't have any food. And the desperation in this little circle of friends is is growing stronger. The desperation of the people who are starving and barren is growing stronger. Do you feel the tension? The question of how will we serve the meal suddenly dawned on us that perhaps we were talking about the wrong thing. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wind this up, all right? You ready? I think maybe the wrong questions were being asked. Because perhaps, rather than sitting around and saying, how do we do it? How do we feed these desperate and hungry people in this barren place? We, we have forgotten who it is that grows the food. We have forgotten how the grace of God 
is distributed. The answers the church is trying to provide to the world are not meeting the need. Because our economies of scarce grace have formed long lines of people who are still waiting for our approval. As if our judgment was their righteousness alone. Our ways of preservation and security have created a long history of separation and violence. Our pursuit of separation has only abandoned the others in spite of their needs. So how will the meal be served? I think this is how it plays out. The people that were carrying the table had had been given a God-ordained task. They were among the hungry who had looked beyond the immediacy of want and they had picked up a piece of hope. And these gift-bearing ones carried with them a piece of a table that was only useful when joined together with the gifts of others. And whatever words we want to describe those backpacking people, the church, the confessed, the forgiven, the saved, the selected, the chosen, or the redeemed, we are describing those who trust and hope that their Father in heaven desires to give good gifts to his starving children. The meal, by the way, the aroma is the presence of God who hints at us far beyond the arrival and the sustaining power, who hints with prevenient grace saying, I got you, can you sense me coming? I'm not far away. And that aroma and God is on the lips of the hungry. It's the only meal that fully satisfies. The God whose presence tells of His forgiveness and commitment. The God of life, the sustaining God, the Father who has who have neglected their, the father whose children have neglected their home, abused the land, and wasted provision, they find themselves in need of a rescue. And it is the father who says, I'm bringing dinner. <laughs> the hungry people in our narrative are also God's people. They are the children of God. They are beloved. They are filled with the same breath from the living God, given the same imago day of creation that you and I are given. They live within the same beloved creation, but they are hungry because they have yet to come to see and fully experience the feast that has been prepared for them. They have yet to realize that they are included and welcomed at the table of God's presence. They have yet to realize that life is a gift from God. And they have yet to realize that no matter their place or circumstances, the meal of sustaining grace is offered to them. And in my dream, we stood wondering how the meal would be served. And suddenly in the midst of our confusion, a voice from elsewhere suddenly called out, Let all who are hungry come eat! And people suddenly began to take a seat, some quickly and others a little apprehensive. And we too realized, you better get in a chair. And every seat was filled with anyone who desired to sit. And no one was left standing or left out from the feast. Full plates of food were shared around the table and there was more food that can be eaten because in the economy of God's grace, there's leftover. In the final image of Scripture, in Revelation 19, there is this great banquet of Christ and His church. We know who that is, right? Christ and His church. A people who were called out of slavery and into the wilderness, married to God in covenant at Sinai, unfaithful for generations, wooed back again and again and again by the love of God, and then finally invited to the final wedding banquet a place where grace is served abundantly and the wedding invite list extends to all. I think, I think that there is a table waiting for us There is a place waiting for us, the church, to to just put it together and say, this is God's, and God invites us. And and, and God will will do the work of of bringing the meal. 
Because God is at work growing the produce. Because God is at work planting the seeds of the kingdom. Because God is at work, He promised that, growing up His faithful people. Because God is at work working the work of salvation of the world. And I think maybe that we find ourselves often rather than at the edge of the field watching and learning and working with Jesus or learning the unforced rhythms of grace at the table, I'm afraid that we often clothe ourselves with a robe of rightness and spend our time consumed with the need of self. And I believe wholeheartedly that what God wants to do in His church is just reach down and say, you're mine. Let's go. Come up to me. Are you tired and weary? You find yourself still there? Come on, Jesus said. Come on. Come on, follow me. And we get up from that place of weariness and tiredness, burnt out on religion. You get it, right? We read it. We get up and experience this bright blueness, this creation, this beautiful thing that God has made for us. We begin to search out God at work, begin to search out the people that God is already stirring we may stumble upon a few barren places and hungry people that God then says, let me use you to set up a table. Are you with me? It's only 8 o'clock. It's doing pretty good today. So I think I'm going to tell you some more story that's not in my notes, but it'll, it'll wrap this up real nice. My own journey told some of that last night at, at New Beginnings. We were able to sell our building, which was clearly, clearly God taking credit for that process. I have no doubt about that. A community of people began to pour themselves out for the sake of the neighborhood, finding barren places and desperate people and giving themselves away and watching what God was going to work and do in the midst of it. It was an incredible story. They intentionally bought a, a structure that had 26 storefronts in it with the cash that they had received because they promised one another that debt would never be their God ever again. And they were able to raise the money to, to convert those 26 spaces. And I told you last night, over the course of three years, they helped find people that were doing good work in the neighborhood. And they said, we'll help you build a small business. We want you to use that business. Maybe it's a coffee shop. Maybe it's Aisha with a hairdressing shop. But we want you to use that business as a faithful presence of meeting people right where they're at, loving on them, and then inviting them into a community of faith. And we started 13 businesses, seven nonprofits, serving food to over 100 people a, a day downtown Kansas City. We had 600 kids a year coming through an after-school program into this property. It was an incredibly beautiful story of what happens when you finally begin to say, we exist for the neighborhood and we begin to give ourselves away. I did that, was there for, for four and a half years before these sabbatical moments and it was a beautiful picture and God began to do something stirring inside of my heart and I didn't understand it because I didn't want to leave. Right, or, right or, or true or not true, there was a sense inside of me that owned a little bit of that story. And it felt good and successful. And then I began to get this disruption of God just saying, leave. And I said, no, oh, this is good. Look around here, God. This is very good. And it was good. It was good work. And God said, no, well, it is good, you're right, but I want you to leave. I said, oh, no, no, God, this place, 
I'm pretty certain it will not survive without me. And God said, yeah, it's good work. But come on, follow me. I said, no way. This is where you called me. I'm going to pastor one church. Because I believe in long-term pastorates. It's effective in committing to the neighborhood. This is where I'm going to be. I already resigned once. I am not going through the shame of doing that again. And God said, follow me. And then I said, in sabbatical, what would that look like? If I followed you, God said, follow me. (laughs) We did not leave or resign willingly. We left kicking and screaming out the door of resisting, saying, we don't want to do this. But to be a faithful people, we have to leave. There was something inside of it. We have to go. For a year, I lived inside of thinking that was an incredible mistake. Why? God, why? I applied for 30 jobs and not one did I get a job offer on. 30. Apparently, 17 years of pastoral ministry on your resume is not desirable in upstate New York. I did a little preaching here or there. Let me back up my story. We put our house up for sale after we'd resigned the church, and I thought, well, probably what will happen is we'll just stay in the area because we won't be able to sell our house. But as a, you know, a test of obedience, God, we'll put it up for sale. We put it up for sale, and within 12 hours, we had six offers on the house, and all of them, all of them were significantly more than we were asking for the house. So like, oh, please, you know. <laughs> so we sold our house, and now at this point, we're jobless. We have no sense of direction. We, didn't, we weren't resigning to go someplace, you know. We didn't have a job. We didn't have a call. We just follow God. We have no house. We began to say, well, what are we going to do? And we reached back into those sabbatical moments, and a sense of, of calling that we had begun to experience when we were in upstate New York on sabbatical. I said, well, we'll go there. Partially because there was an empty garage at my in-law's house. So we moved into my in-law's garage. That is the epitome of midlife success. (laughs) I have no job. Uh, I live in my in-law's garage. And all of my friends are calling and saying, hey, what are you going to do? I don't know. Now I'm going to tell you more to the story. Because we didn't have a place to go, because we didn't have a calling, we simply obeyed out of saying, let's go. Do you know what's being said behind us? There's a reason why. And I'm getting called, Shane, tell, you can talk to me, trust me. And say, what, do I, what am I trusting you with? Well, I know there's a reason why. Tell me what it is. You got marriage problems? What is it? No, I, I mean, we're, we're trying to be faithful. And listen, I know no one would do that out of faithfulness, so what is the real story? A year of that. Worked a couple of odd jobs. I was mowing grass for $13 an hour, which was minimum wage in New York, at a uh, camp. I was actually weed eating. I was mowing grass, but holding a weed eater. I remember, I remember just, just starting weeping. And then I started screaming. And I looked up. And in my imagination, I saw, I saw a man, trust me, he wasn't there, I'm not weird like that, it's just in my imagination. <laughs> I saw this guy walking towards me, and he was behind a horse and behind a plow. And he was looking me right in the eye. And 
He didn't have to say anything because the message was clear, and that was, do you trust me to do my work? Went back to Eden. Who made a few dollars, but even without, uh, let's see, at that point it was 14 months uh, without consistent income. And when we sold our house, we paid off her debt and committed to living a non anxious life of debt. And so that was a great gift that God has given to us. Back up to about a month and a half ago, as we've continued in that journey. It was a Sunday afternoon, and Ashley and I sat down with the kids, and we kind of knew where we were. We've been this journey for over a year and a half, homeless, unemployed. But at this point, we had settled into this reality. This is call. We're here. Our spiritual director has said to us, stay faithful to the call. That's the call. Stay faithful to the call. And I remember my wife's mentor saying, is there anything else you can do? And actually saying, I don't know. We've been as faithful as we know how to be. And she said, have you ever just considered asking God for the gift that he wants to give his children? I said, well, actually, the third commandment, do not tempt God, is... So we sat our kids down on a Sunday afternoon and we said, this is it. This is make it or break it. <laughs> I had 37 cents in our bank account. And Ashley and I sat down with our kids on Sunday and said, we're going to pray. We're going to pray with gratitude. Every night we're going to gather in this garage and we're going to list out 100 things, 100 gifts that we have that we were thankful for. So we sat down on Sunday, and it was pretty easy, you know, Legos. <laughs> Kids are jumping in. We're naming stuff, and we write it down, and we sat down on Monday. Oh, I forgot to tell you one detail there. 100 things. And then Ashley says, and by the way, I'm going to ask God uh, Friday at 3. And I said, what, what does that mean, Friday at 3? She said, I'm not really sure what it means yet, just Friday at 3. We're going to pray it every night, Friday at 3. I said, well, what, what do you mean Friday at 3? She said, I think God can figure that out. It's just Friday at 3. All right. So we sat down Monday night, named 100 things. Tuesday night, that ah, was a struggle. We'd gone through our list. And now it gets work. And it takes 30, 40 minutes sitting with the kids. And we finally get to our list, a handwritten list of the 100 gifts that we have that we are grateful for. We get to Wednesday night hundred and it is an hour process maybe an hour and a half and get through that list and then God hear our prayer Friday at three Thursday Thursday I got a call I said hey there's a job opportunity in town at a at her, uh, addictions rehab place that they're looking for a, a spiritual director it's eight hours a week I said well I'll come talk to you and I went and talked to him on Thursday they said okay great and I could sense it wasn't exactly what they were, you know, aiming for. And I wasn't, you know, an already self-fulfilling process. I mean, I knew 31 was coming. I'd already got to 30. So 31 turndowns is, I can handle that. So I left that, and Ashley's like, how'd it go? And I'm like, ah, you know, it's eight hours a week job. I'm not sure that I was really what they were looking for. And I think maybe, you know, that whole 17 years of pastoral experience might have scared them off. <laughs> <laughs> and... It's like, all right, let's 100 things we're grateful for. So we sat down, prayed 100 things we're grateful for. Friday at 3. It's Friday now. And I'm in town. It's about 11.30 and my phone rings. And he says, hey, this is Zach. I said, yeah, Shane. He goes, you remember from me from yesterday? I'm like, oh, is that, yeah, yeah, hello, this is Shane. And he's like, <laughs> real serious, real fast. And he said, uh, when you left yesterday, 
And so something strange happened. And he said, I, I, I apologize. It may have felt weird in the room. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> he said, uh, we were kind of embarrassed that, that we called you in to interview for an eight-hour-a-week job. And he said, I'm just wondering, if you, would you come back today and go into this people's desk or this person's office, and we need you to fill out a form, and just write on there what it would take for us to hire you full-time. We need a number. I said, like, what do you mean a number? He's like, like how much are you willing to, to receive to like, work for us full-time? I don't know, one million dollars. No. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, <laughs> I go in, and I think, I don't know, write a number down. I don't know. And about one o'clock, and that phone rings, and he's like, we're in. I said, we're in for what? He goes, we, 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 we want you. We want, we want you to come in and, and work for us. And I said, well, what am I going to be doing? He goes, well, that's up to you. He goes, he said, you, you said that, you know, your passion is, is being able to, to offer this freedom of Christ and this spiritual direction to people. He said, you, you know, we got 285 beds here of addicted people that we have no spiritual program, and we want you to figure out and come in and write it for us. So, all right, be there Monday. Yeah. Amen, right? We had had a sense of which we, we wanted to buy some land in New York, but it was impossible to afford it. There was a neighbor that died next door to Ashley's parents, and we knew there was no chance that we could ever buy that. We didn't have a job, had no money, but we would love to have a place, a home, since we were homeless and living in the in-laws' garage. Living next door to the in-laws in my own house would be different than living <laughs> in the garage. Friday is about 2 o'clock, and I got a phone call from the lawyer that ran the estate. He said, hey, Shane, yeah, uh, I've got a letter here from a nephew of the gentleman that died, and they would really like you to uh, have this land, but we, we need, I said, what? They said, well, they would really like to have you to have this land and this house, it's 50 acres, two barns, two sheds, two houses. Um, but the estate requires that I get the appraisal value for it. And so we need to work out a little situation. And, and by the way, I had done some work there, some maintenance on this property for him and kind of kept up the property. And he goes, I feel like we didn't quite give you enough money for that. So I'm going to come in. I want you to sign this bill I've got worked up for you here. And it's going to go really well. The family's are really ha happy for this. And come on in. So I go in and I'm not going to bore you with the full story, even though it's a really good one. But if you took and you played out 17 months to the day of which I stopped receiving a salary 17 months before, this is not a lie. And if you added up those months, and if you'd played those months out, and you'd totaled up all those dollars for 17 months, I walked in and the lawyer said, we'd like would like out of this estate to, for you to have this so that you can pay for this land. Which means we were given a gift of 50 acres, two houses, two barns, and two sheds for just a few thousand dollars out of our need. Hold on. It wasn't 3 o'clock yet. <laughs> now what I'd not tell you was that for months we had been meeting with a community of families. We didn't really know what that was going to look like or what it should look like. It was just really, let's get together with some friends and have some community. And it was 3 o'clock when we get a call. And it's a couple of families saying, we just sense that we've been doing this thing Sunday morning, Sunday at nights about meeting together. And Shane... Ashley, what we, what we really want to do is we want to take this to another step. And we want to just say, we are a church. We want to begin to meet together and develop rhythms together. And what you don't know is we've been talking about this experience that we've been having as families on Sunday mornings. And we sat down and, and we've got about 40 or 50 people that, that are going to be here on Sunday. And, and we need for you, if you would, to come in and begin to kind of pastor us. Will you do that for us? 
Friday at 3. 17 months of trying to figure out what in the world God was doing. And one day we were given a vocation of mission, a blessing of place, and a community of God's people. Those are all gifts that come together to form a table for the area to say God sees you, God loves you. Are you with me? And if we will get our heads and our burdened, weary bodies and stop worrying about ourselves so much, God is doing the work. And He will give us the gifts. He will put us in the right place. And He will bless us. And He will empower us for His mission. But it does require being willing to take some incredibly brave risks to follow Jesus. Now that whole ten minutes there wasn't planned, so the ending's going to change, but let's stand together. It would be impossible for me to invite you to an altar right now, because I just told you about getting up from the altar and going outside, but... But here's what I want to invite you to do, and that is to extend your hands in an open position and then close them. And may our hands today recognize anything that we're holding on to. Maybe it's our own judgment. We talked about that. Our fear of others. We talked about that. Maybe it's in our churches. We're, we're holding on to traditions and just patterns. If you went to New Beginnings, they would tell you they held on to a building and a debt. And my guess is that we're all really, really tired of holding on to this stuff. We, we really do want this good and beautiful way of the kingdom. We, we really want God to do something great, but, but we've got a pretty big grip on a whole bunch of stuff. And those are idols. We have fixed our eyes on them. We have held on to them till our knuckles are white. Our arms are weary and tired. And Jesus says, come on. Come on. He says, come to me. He says, work with me. Come on, work with me. I'm going to show you how to do it. He says, let, let me do my job. I'll work beside me. I'll show you how. Walk with me. He says, let me, let me teach you some unforced rhythms of of grace. He said, I really want your life to be free and to be light. What he's saying is, is let go. That's what he's saying. Tonight, if, if you're in a place where, where you would just say, Jesus, I'm going to let go, would you? Would you let go? With an open hand, just as a sign to your neighbors and a sign to God and a sign to yourself, that said, I'm going to let go. Jesus, would you do your work in places that are unexpected and unseen? I'm going to go follow you. I'm going to search for you. I'm going to search for where you're working at. I'm going to join you. I'm going to watch you work. I'm going to join you and be doing I'm going to be there. Dear God, would you take this group of people that stand with open hands? It may take 17 months of sabbatical. It might take 17 days. I don't, it might take 17 minutes. I don't know. God, you're in charge of that. But would you give to them the gift of mission, of place, neighborhood, and a vocation, a calling, Sending that comes from you. And we be a faithful people to walk in and to testify the goodness of God. In the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.